Hey, good morning. Man, so glad you are all here for uh, week number five of our series called I Have a Friend Who. And uh, just real fast uh, before we jump in, why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to be in John chapter 8 uh, today. That's page 889. Uh, page 889 is where we're going to be at. Uh, but while you're going there, I just really want to piggyback on those announcements that you just heard. Uh, you know, our summer um, is going to be a whole lot of fun between the movie night coming up in a couple weeks, um, summer challenge at the mid- middle of July, and uh, with GLS coming up in August. And that's really our major ways to connect with each other this, this summer. Um, and so definitely nail, um, I would say, you know, definitely want to do all three of those if you got kids uh, in summer challenge and all of that. Uh, but really want to make sure you guys nail one of those as a major way to connect with us together as a church. So um, definitely take care of the pricing right now for, for, for Summer Challenge by itself, as well as the GLS. So right at 49 bucks for the first 100 at Summer Challenge and 89 for, uh, for the GLS. That's two days of, of just really intense leadership training, really excellent leadership training. Um, and then that goes up here pretty soon. So you definitely want to get on uh, registering for those uh, this, uh, this summer. So... Anyway, we're in John chapter 8 today, and uh, yeah, we're in week number five of a series called I Have a Friend Who, and really what we've done is we've spent the entire spring, or really from February till now, um, on one or two verses uh, that Jesus spoke about. Jesus said, Jesus said, <laughs> God bless you, <laughs> when, when, every, when, when Jesus said this, Jesus says that we should love each other the way that I have loved you. It's this really scandalous, major way that Jesus really is, is saying here, because if you think about the, all the ways that Jesus loved us, uh, you, you begin to think about, wow, there's just a whole lot of depth that I need to create in my own heart, that God needs to strengthen in, within me and change within me so that I can actually do what he's asking me to do. And so we spent a, the first half of that, we spent the first series just talking about what this type of relationship looks like. And then we spent the last number of weeks applying that to specific relationships that we have. And today, we're going to be talking about really a relationship that whether you know it or not, you're probably affected by in some way. Um, You might have a friend or a family member who might be uh, in regards to today. Um, You might have some sort of, uh, you know, interesting concept or just a friend of a friend or a family that knows someone or someone that's connected here. But today, we're talking about, I have a friend who's in the LGBT community. And really, it's all over, uh, kind of all over the place. And, and today, if you kind of came expecting for me, like finally Brandon's going to put his stance down on this and we're going to be able to hear what he thinks or whatever, I think you're going to leave here pretty disappointed um, because that's not what I'm, I'm here to do today. Our church doesn't make public stances on private issues. Uh, it doesn't. We, we, we really handle each one of these things very personally upon each family. And so I'm not going to present to you today an argument um, because there's really two sides to this idea. There's the affirming side and the non-affirming side. They spent a lot of time really wrestling with what to call these things, right? They said, you know, the Bible says, okay, homosexuality and, and, and transitioning gender and all that sort of thing, that, that, that's fine. That's part of, that's part of God's good creation. Um, there's another that doesn't say that. They said, no, 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 that's not part of God's good design. We should be, you know, kind of directing people away from that, and that's the non-affirming side. And, and really, at this stage of the game, where, where culture has brought us in this uh, conversation, has gotten us to the point where there's a good chance most of you in this room today have come to some sort of position 
on this. Regardless of how you got there, you might have gotten there through your upbringing, through your conservative uh, viewpoint on things. You might have gotten there because you know someone, and you're a little, and you're more affirming because you have a friend or a family member that are that are in the, that are in this community. Regardless of how you got here, here's what happens, though, when you start to hear uh, positions and you start to hear arguments. You start to put confirmation bias on top of what we got going on. And the media really, really compounds this issue, just forcing us into our different sides and not closing the gap when it comes to this issue. And so what we have here is a, a conversation that needs to happen but is unable to happen because we are just stricken by confirmation bias. We're looking for the right things that support our viewpoint. And that's not, if I were to present to you an argument into the midst of that type of a culture today, I think it would do more harm uh, than good. And you'll see I'm going to touch on that here in the text And so I'm not going to present a biblical argument for the affirming or the non-affirming side because I really think it's good and right that we have multiple viewpoints all within our church. But what I do want to do is focus on the relationship that we can begin to have with someone who is in the LGBT community, really focus on the personal dynamics that we can begin to engage in. I don't want to present to you an argument to say, okay, here's what we got. I think that'll shut down conversation, but I do want to say, hey, how can we learn to engage our friends and our family and the people that we are running into that are in this community in a way that Jesus might have done it? There are some really, really good books, though, if you are kind of wrestling with what the Bible says when it comes to homosexuality and and transgender issues. um, I want to bring you through these books real fast so that you can begin to study some more. Uh, The first one is uh, Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian. And, and so Matthew will, uh, he's going to come at it from a more of a affirming viewpoint. He's going to try to break down the Bible in a way that, that shows this affirming side. A real young guy, real great author, um, and, a, and, a, and a New Testament scholar. He's a great, great guy there. Um, Mark Yarhouse, um, he writes a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Um, and so he's going to take it from the, uh, the psychological and the psychiatric idea, uh, psychiatric point of view. And then he's also going to apply Bible and scripture into the point as well. So another great, especially in the transgender um, community right now, it's so new um, that people are starting to, to make some, uh, some big steps in it. Really would be good for you to read uh, as a way to get your brain around some of that. Um, Wesley Hill uh, is, wrote a book called Washed and Waiting, and he's a, a New Testament PhD, um, but he's a homosexual himself, and, and so he's taken a, a, a non-affirming position of his own condition. I, I just love his writing and love the way that he handles it. Um, and so if you want to pick up some of that, pick up Wesley Hill, Washed and Waiting. Um, there's a couple more. Caleb Kaltenbach, he's a, now this is a, a more pastoral approach uh, to the LGBT community and what, it makes, uh, which, what makes Caleb's uh, point of view so unique is that he was raised by, uh, by homosexual parents and then he became a pastor later in life. And so just really excellent points of view um, on that. And then lastly, I would say if there's any book that you, if you had to pick one out of the list, this was the, the book that really helped me a ton in, in, different, in, in the different elements of, of this conversation. Uh, but Preston Sprinkle, uh, uh, People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. And this book is uh, just really helpful. So if you are wrestling with some more of the, 
the dynamics of that, just more of that type of conversation. Those books there will present to you a different viewpoints of the varying scriptures that are in play when we have this conversation. Um, but today, what I want to do is figure out, okay, regardless of where we stand, whether you're an affirming or in a non-affirming point of view, whether you believe that homosexuality and gender transition is okay and fine and, or whether you don't, I want us to have a figure out how to have a conversation together and how to actually engage someone uh, and love them the like Jesus would. I want to get there because what happens is, is we get forced into our conversations, we get forced into our stances, and then we don't actually pursue that. And then another thing that happens to me, whenever I've had conversations with people on both sides of the issue here, and they come up to me and say, Pastor, or, or they say, Brandon, this is clear. The, what the Bible teaches is clear. And they're from the affirming and the non-affirming side. And sometimes I just want to be like, let's have a conversation, the three of us, and let's figure out how clear this really is. Uh, because if you, if you look at it, if you're actually considering what the text says, it actually comes out to be more difficult than we think. And, and really, our bias comes out, the way that we approach this conversation, simply by the way that we read the Bible sometimes. I say, no, it's not really that clear. Anytime you're dealing with a 4,000-year-old text, it actually does not come out that clear. So let's really wrestle with what the text says. A lot of times when people come, they say, no, it's clear, it's clear, it's clear. I find out that most of the time that the way they're reading Scripture is through a lens of some sort. It's through a lens of some sort, and they're actually not breaking down what's going on. And so whether that's on the affirming or non-affirming side, they tend to blanket it all. I'd say, you know what, you don't want to be like that. You don't want to read the Bible that way. You want to actually break the scriptures down, actually get into what's going on, actually figure out what the culture is saying, why it's doing that. Those books will help you do that way better and way more than I'll be able to in this 30 minutes that we're going to be together. So I want to focus on how we engage people, and then you can go through and study the text in that manner. So we good? We tracking? All right, if you guys want to leave all right now, just someone get me a coffee. That's cool. Works out fine. Everyone's like, let's get out of here. I don't know. But what we want to do is study a text here that I believe really would apply to today's situation, the LGBT community. And that's in John chapter 8, verse 1. Here we go. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in the front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let, no, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So where this text, 
where we find ourselves when we're reading this text at, at the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8 is, is, what, is what the Israelites celebrated called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the last of their feast. It happened at the late fall time frame. And it was after they spent all year really prepping the ground and growing, harvesting, and they just planted their seeds and they're praying to God. They're praying to God for, uh, for there to be a lot of rain so that they'd have a great harvest in the springtime. And so they're at this moment where they're saying, okay, okay, God, we, we have worked all year and we're trusting you and we're, we're putting our hope in you for you to give us a great harvest. And so literally thousands of people would descend upon Jerusalem. They would celebrate God and their hope in him and their dreams in him. And what they would do is they would stay in these little tents all the way throughout the city because they were, they, were, they were celebrating and recognizing that God at one point tabernacled along with them. So it was the symbol of God's presence in the midst of where they were. So we'd stay in these little tents. There's lots of celebrating, lots of partying, lots of, you know, some drinking and all that sort of stuff, you know, like grape juice, not wine, right, that sort of thing. And then, like, all this celebrating. And then naturally what would happen is people would end up in different people's tents, and so at that point, you have this idea where you're saying, okay, but where's the man, right? Like naturally, where's the man? And so you see how this sort of thing can naturally take place, but they use this situation as a situation to trap Jesus with. And they come up to him and they say, what do you, what do you want to do with this woman? And so just from this story, four observations for me that I have from Jesus in, in ways that we should uh, connect with our friends in the LGBT community. Number one, number one, we need to have empathy over judgment. Empathy over judgment. See, see what, what's going on with this woman is, is, is women in the first century, they were treated as a separate class. It's treated as a separate class. No respect for them, no desires for them, no dreams for nothing. And they're throwing them down at the feet of Jesus throwing her down at the feet of Jesus, and they're treating her as a textbook. They're treating her, just, just stripping all humanity from her and say, Jesus, what are you going to do with this test? Now, this is a massive thing for Jesus because, because when, you, when, they, when they're bringing this, uh, this woman in front of Jesus, it's a trap for him. And the trap is this. Roman law says that there's nothing that needs to happen right now. That this is, you know, there's no killing necessary. But Jewish law, Jewish law says that this woman should die and be stoned for her sin. And there's this third party, the woman, who's not allowed to talk at all. They take her voice right from her. And legally, Jesus is, is just not even expected to say anything. He doesn't have to respond at all to this situation. But here's the thing. If he says, okay, don't kill her, he's, he's satisfying Roman law, but he's, 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 it's possible that he could be um, a, a heretic for, from Jewish law. If he says, kill her, then he could be violating Roman law because Roman law says don't do anything. And if he says nothing, she dies anyway. So what do you do? What I love, though, about Jesus is that he begins to address her as a person, not as an issue. And I think one of the biggest things that we need to start with um, when we're engaging the LGBT community is we have to see them not as issues to be dealt with, but people to be loved. 
people that are in this community, they're not issues. They don't, you can't take a stance on a person. You can only love a person. Now, at this point, you're going to be like, but, 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 wait, 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 oh, 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 hold on. And we get into these situations, but, but, wait, hold on, hold on, stop. There's so much that we need to talk about. There's so much that we need to do. I said, no, no, let's just start with the idea that God Almighty, creator of the universe, created people in his image. And in his image, he created them and he pursues them by loving them, moving down from heaven, pursuing us, dying and resurrecting so that they could have new life. Everybody's in that playing field. And so we have to start with this deep amount of empathy because what happens is we tend to have a temptation to prejudge people. We bring all of these, if, all these biases in our life and all these things, well, that's not right and that's not this and whatever, and we allow that to stack between us and the other person. And guess what the Bible never does? That. When you say you want to love people like Jesus loved, you have to start with a deep sense of empathy that the person's actually a person, that they're not just an issue, that there's something there that Jesus deeply loves. You'll have deep empathy when you realize that someone in the LGBT community is wrestling with the deepest sense of what it means to be human. They're wrestling deep down inside with how to exist. And often, other people treat them as issues to be agreed with or disagreed with instead of people to sit with and engage in. If you want to love people like Jesus loved, you got to start with empathy over judgment. And this is literally on either side of the coin, whether you're affirming or not affirming. We have to start here. Empathy on the, on the non-affirming side, saying this is different. This is a different thing. This has changed. This is a lot going on here that I have to figure out if I'm comfortable with. And so there's changes in wrestling, and we have to start with the deepest idea that we're wrestling with what it means to be a human. We start with empathy. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says that he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. So my question right now is, what is your knee-jerk reaction? When you hear of someone that is, that is a homosexual or transgender, what is the first thing that happens? That anxiety or like that movement, you have to know so that you can begin to work through that. If it's with deep grace and not any movement towards them at all, I would say you, gotta, you have to start there. Deep, deep empathy over judgment. Don't prejudge people. Don't develop their stories for them. Don't get them into places by your own points of view that you would never give to yourself. Start with deep, deep empathy and move uh, from there. Number two, second thing from this story is, is that we need to choose community over polarity. Community over polarity. And I say this uh, to, to, 
to Christian circles all of the time, when I'm talking to, to pastors or friends or wherever they are, um, whenever the, the Christian community decides that they're against something, what do they do? They boycott it. They boycott it. And the first thing they always say is that we, we create gaps when we disagree with things. Guess who doesn't create gaps? Jesus. Jesus, what does he do? Closes gaps. And I would say, thank God Jesus did not do that to us when we realized that he, that we realized that we had a gap with him. When he realized that we had a gap with him, he did not do it. He closed the gap. And so we have to sit with community over polarity. When we begin to have polarity, the conversation does not take place. And so the question that comes up, though, is, well, how do I have this conversation with someone on the other side of the tracks? How do I have that conversation with them? How do I do this? It really comes down to the, the question of this. What community are you a part of? What level of community do you have? And so there's really four levels of community. And healthy community, you'll find different relationships across all four spheres. You'll have different community over all four spheres. And public, public community is this. You're connected by a cause. So if you're at Gillette or if you're at, the, if you're at Fenway Park and, 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 and Brady throws this incredible 60-yard touchdown pass, what are you doing? You're standing up and you're high-fiving everybody, aren't you? Right? You have, or maybe just me. Okay, I have no Patriots fans in this, in this gathering. Man, that's tough. Okay, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. It's fine. Um, no, so what are you doing? You're, you're, you're high-fiving people. Why? Because you belong at that point. You're both cheering for something, engaging with them. But what if at that point you turn back and say, all right, cool. Well, hey, uh, you have any kids or have any, you have a wife or kids or whatever? And they're like, I'm watching a Patriots game right now. I'm not really talking about that. Because that's public space. You're connected by some external cause. But from there, you move to social space. This is where you share snapshots about who you are. Social spaces where you're, you know, having that casual coffee or having that casual drink or engaging with people at a dinner party or doing something along those ways, those lines. And that's a social space. It's probably safe to say if you find yourself in either one of these two things that talking about an LGBT issue is probably not the place to do it, okay? And so if you're in that relationship, if you're only in a public relationship or only in a social relationship with someone, you're not going to be able to have a meaningful conversation, and it's going to be dictated primarily by belief and bias rather than actually caring for the other person. Are we tracking on that? When you start to move down to the personal level, which is, this is where you're sharing your hopes and dreams, you're saying, okay, here's how my kids, actually, a good gauge for this, psychologists say, is, is if you can make eye contact with someone for more than 20 seconds. If you can do that, you're at a personal level with them. It would be ridiculous to think that the, an LGBT type of conversation would not come up at a personal level. And lastly, intimate. This is where they say, really, you can only have four to eight people that are in this bucket. This is where you're just naked. This is all of me. This is who I am, naked and unashamed. It would be crazy to think that this conversation doesn't come up here. But many times, we're engaging with people at this level, and we're trying to throw around our beliefs like it's what's, what's driving everything about our relationships. When it comes to here, man, you're, you're, it's, you're in. 
you're having that conversation with people. But on this stuff here, we really got to figure it. It's really this loose type of thing. What, what Jesus does with this woman is he creates community, but it's a very public community, very public space that he's in. Because Jesus does care about the way that you live. He does care about what you do. But he doesn't break community over some of those things. Certain levels he does, he begins to consider this. But the way that this conversation really starts off with, it doesn't ever break into the personal level, yet here we are just shooting our beliefs like it's no big deal. And so we have to fight for community over polarity. This is what Galatians 6 talks about when, it talks, when, it, when, when Paul's talking about this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. I, mean, I love the Bible, don't you? I just love that. Like, hey, if you think you're too important to help someone like this, you're fooling yourself, man. You're not that important. Because he's saying you want to fight for community. If I have any critique over the LGBT community, it's this one right here. I have, I have, I have two really, really, really close friends that would put themselves in this community. And often we talk about this stuff because many times the LGBT community, they want full acceptance, but they often keep a distance until you can give that. And it's, it's a very, very, it's a, the breakdown of it is very defensive. It's very disengaging. And so we often talk about the fact that it, with, my, with my really good friends, again, we're on a personal, almost intimate level with some, of these, uh, with, with some of these people, that they're saying, no, 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 I want full affirmation, but I'm removing myself until you give that to me. It's really a, a contradiction to even what they're saying. And so if that's any critique that I have over that, it really comes down to this type of thing, that we really need to be in community with each other. So if you find yourself affirming or not affirming, but, you're, but you'd rather stay polarized, I don't think you're loving like Jesus loved. When you, when you fight for community, to be at the table, to sit with them, to engage in that type of personal back and forth, then you're fighting for that community with them. I can often tell if you know someone who is either transgender or homosexual, simply by the way that you talk. Simply by the way that you talk. When you think about it, this, when this issue really became a, a political idea and it started making headlines, it started making news, and, these, and really conservative people came out with these major stances, like day, one or two days in, as soon as they found someone that they knew, what happened? They changed. They changed. Because this, this conversation really sits at the deep, deep, personal, and intimate level. And yet we make these really rash decisions so fast and really make these major stances so quickly that we don't ever get to the point where we can break into a conversation with them. And we stay polarized instead of existing in community. Again, at our church, we don't make public stances on personal issues, and we, we, really stay, we really stay to that conversation with them. We really want to make sure every conversation is being had. 
And so we say, hey, on a Sunday morning, our doors are wide open. Our doors are wide open on a Sunday morning. But just as your relationships progress and as your relationships progress here, it would be really ridiculous to think that that part of our lives doesn't get brought up at that moment when that begins to progress and we deeply start to move together. We start to go from there. And so we need to fight for community rather than staying polarized over this issue. Number three, the third third sort of uh, gauge here from this story is that we need to have reflection over response. Reflection over response. Jesus is the most emotionally healthy person I've ever seen in my whole life. If you think about this, they're like, they're like fighting for him to make an answer. Immediate, right now. He throws this woman in front of him, says, all right, he needs you to make a decision right now. And what does he do? He backs down and he begins to write in the dust. If you've been a Christian for any sort of, long t- any sort of length of time, you begin to think, what does he write in the dust? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever, well, we're going to get there later. Okay, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you in a second. Well, he could be writing in the dust. Of course, I wasn't there. But. but what does he do? He backs up and he begins reflecting. And they're demanding an answer. They keep demanding an answer. Do you imagine how quiet and awkward that would have been? The emotional depth that Jesus would have needed in order to not say anything at that time? He begins to reflect. He begins to break it all down. So when we begin to talk about this with Christians, when I begin to talk about this with Christians, I often will miss something in the way that they're talking, that there's any personal reflection that's even being had. Now, there's this thing in this, in this conversation. There's, there's six primary passages that talk regarding homosexuality. And they've come to be known as clobber passages. Have you heard this? Clobber passages. This, the, the book that's supposed to be the source, and, and, and the source of life and the process and the way to God has become to be known as something that people can be clobbered by. It's supposed to be the source of good news, but yet it becomes a hammer for people to use to fight for their own way of life, to fight for their own opinions. And so what I often say to someone who's, who's struggling with this and, and really just doesn't, hasn't had that personal reflection yet is that I say, you know, four out of those six clobber passages that we use to clobber homosexuality and transgender issues, are, they find the word homosexuality in a list of other things that we all struggle with, that we all struggle with. It's there, right in the midst. And I'm going to show them to you real fast here. Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, there's three chapters that, that people use religiously to say, no, this, this isn't the way God created humans. And so they point this out that this scripture says this, says this, but look at what's surrounding it in, the, in all of the three chapters. There are issues of, he says that these are the things that are not allowed. Incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches. Okay, check, <laughs> right? Like, okay, I didn't have an issue with any of those. But look at it. theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, Oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality, slander? Where do I sign? Where do I confess? 
And so we pick this word out of this list, but, but really the, the Bible's talking about all of these things within that section of Scripture, yet we throw all that other stuff away. Look at it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is talking about it in the same way. He says, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them will. And I'm like, man, I've done probably three of those. But yet we, we choose not to reflect on our own personal nature. Again, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says this. He says, the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It's for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing and sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from God. Lastly, Romans chapter 1. This one's a bit of a longer one. But I really want you to get this point today. I really want you to wrestle with this. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. But then go back to, to uh, go to the last slide there, Chris. Look at, it breaks down to chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others to these very same things. God, that we would begin to see that we're all sinners, that we're all separated from you until Jesus in his grace and mercy closed that gap. We are so quick to base a judgment on somebody and we literally have to skip 98% of the text in order to do that. It should be massively convicting. And so we have to reflect over we respond. We have to reflect over a major response, an immediate response to it. I'm so thankful that Paul says that, that we've all fallen short. That we've all fallen short. But have been given a gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. The repentance of sin. And so we're so quick to make this the issue. We have to skip over a whole lot about our own heart before we can even do that.
And so you want to reflect over response. Jesus does this. But then what does, what does Jesus do at the end? Number four, he has grace over condemnation. He has grace over condemnation. He stands up and he goes this. He goes, all right, I'll, make, I'll give you an answer. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. That's a pretty good stance to have when it comes to issues regarding the LGBT community, don't you think? He who's without sin, throw the first stone. Now look, there's all sorts of different things that come alongside. I know, I get that. Whether you're on the affirming or non-affirming side, I understand that there's all sorts of buts, but wait, 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 hold on, hold on. There's all sorts of stuff, there's nuance, there's all sorts of conversation. That I get that. But what does Jesus do first? Where are your condemners? Does anyone condemn you? No. But neither do I. Thank God Jesus says to us, neither do I. Here's what he does. This is what Jesus is doing. He, he sees the trap. He gets it because he's just the smartest dude ever. And he backs up and he begins to write in the dust. At this time, at this moment in the Feast of Tabernacles, again, they're studying and teaching that God is their hope, that God is their source of life, that God is like the water that's going to come and give life to the ground. And so they're praising God for the hope that they have in him because they know that life comes from him. And one of the verses that they would begin to study at this moment in this, tabern- in, these, in this Feast of Tabernacles comes from Jeremiah 17. It says this. It says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. So what do you think Jesus might be writing in the dust here? Here's what my biggest fear is, is that whether you think that this issue is a affirming thing that you should, we, we should pursue in all of it, but whether you think this is a non-affirming issue, whether you should just completely break away from it, my biggest fear is that Jesus would look upon the response of his church and begin to write our names in the dust. Regardless of where Jesus is at this, regardless of where this woman is at, he, he could be convicting her of some major sin in this moment. Because there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Jesus convicts us and changes us, and, and we should be pursuing that sort of life change. But he doesn't condemn, and he doesn't condemn anybody. The, the announcement of the gospel to all of us today is, We've all fallen short of, with sin. But we've, given a, we've been given a good gift in Jesus. And that should be our response to someone in this community. My biggest fear is that Jesus would begin to write our names in the dust because we let belief stop us from loving the very people that God created. But, but, but wait, 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 hold on. There's so much that I know. I know. And there was a lot here in John chapter 8. The very things that this woman was doing, Jesus condemns, uh, convicts, and, and, and says you shouldn't do this in other places. 
no, 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 you shouldn't do any of that. He, he, he's already made these statements in his ministry. And in this moment, he says, you're not condemned. I'm about to give my life for people like you. And so this morning, my prayer is this, that you would begin to see these people as not as issues to be dealt with. Not as issues to be dealt with, not like a textbook, people without voices, but that you would begin to see them as people wrestling deeply with what it means to be human. With people that God created. People that God deeply loves. We'll get to the conversations. We'll get to the nuance. We'll get to all that sorts of thing. But Jesus' first step, he says, make sure you love them like I love them. Giving my life for them. Giving my life for you. Because we've all fallen short. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Church, I pray this morning that we can wrestle, that we can fight for community, that we can start with empathy, that we could begin to reflect way before we make these blanket statements like we don't know anybody with this issue. But more than anything, I pray that like Jesus, we can start with grace. move towards life change because that's your story that's your story and we should give that same story to everybody that's in search of the good news of Christ, amen Jesus how this is such a tough issue, a tough conversation to have but God I pray that you deepen our heart the emotional capacity of our heart to love people like you do regardless of belief, regardless of action, regardless of rhythms, regardless of all that, God, that our first step when we pray for one and we pray, God, that you'd give us one person to share your love with today, that it'd be regardless of belief, regardless of background, regardless of all the buts and waits and hold-ons and wait a second, there's a, this is uncomfortable, but, God, that you would give us the capacity to love people like you love them. God, I pray that you allow us to open our hands to you today. not fighting for control, not fighting for, for people to change or to live the way that we want them to, but God, that we'd give them to you. Whether we find ourselves on the affirming or non-affirming side of this issue, God, I pray that you empower us to simply love people. Start there, God. Let us start there. Let us be okay with starting there because that's where you do. God, we want to do this like you do. We want to be just like you, God. So church, with all of our eyes closed still, God, I, I just, we're going to sing this chorus together. I pray that you just kind of say it as a prayer today as we consider what it's like to love people the way Jesus loved them. Just sing, let's sing this chorus as, 
as God begins to change us to love like he did.